Hey guys, this is Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. When you become a mother, there's something that's so natural, so innate, so instinctual about protecting your child. All those phrases like mama bear and dragon mama, they all hold some truth. Well, mothers have an animal instinct to protect their children. But what happens when they can't protect them from the grips of a disease or disability or a disorder? What then? Well, my guest today is a writer, a speaker, and an advocate of a rare disease of rare diseases, and she's a rare disease mama. Her son, Miles, was diagnosed with uh, spinal muscular atrophy, which is a SMA, a rare neuromuscular disease at the age of only 18 months. She's the founder and creator of Rare Mamas, a resource and a community to support rare disease mothers, and the host of Rare Mamas Rising podcast, a platform for mothers to share their stories and learn from one another. Nikki McIntosh, thanks so much for being a part of the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Antel. Excited to be here. Absolutely. Look, let's uh, let's go back for a minute. And why don't you tell me a little bit about your family and where you're from and what was going on before Miles was diagnosed? Love to. Um, so I'm from I'm from Chicago originally, but my family and I live in Southern California. And my husband and I, Tony, have two sons. My older son, Mason, who is 12, almost 12, and Miles, my younger son, who's almost 10. And I think before Miles was diagnosed, we were like any other new family. Um, my husband and I were working. We were busy raising two toddlers. Um, we were elated. We were exhausted. Um, but just enjoying kind of this special time in our life, starting our family. And, and what were the first symptoms that something may be wrong or something was going wrong? We, we noticed probably around the year marker, nine-month marker, we noticed that Miles was not bearing weight on his legs. Uh, we had an older son, so we knew kind of the milestones. And Miles had met all of them until it really came time to stand and walk. He wasn't doing those precursor things to walking, pulling up to stand, cruising furniture. And really that not bearing weight uh, was a telltale sign and really had us concerned. So you, of course, right? I, mean, I will I'll tell you, I, I can understand what you kind of went through. I, um, when my uh, second daughter was born, um, I had, we had, it, this is a crazy story. I, my wife had gotten divorced and, and um, this is my daughter's maybe, I don't know, 12 days old and even seven days old. And I had her by myself and wow. um, literally was changing her onesie and I started noticing something really strange. Every time I moved her arm to put it in and out of her onesie, she would let out this blood curdling scream. And I was like, that's not normal. I had already had a daughter before and I just realized that and I had the other daughter was in the back room. She wasn't, you know, five years old and and she comes running out, what's the matter with Marissa? And I was like looking and I'm trying to figure it out. So I literally went to the hospital just going, yeah, I don't know what's going right. on. That's kind of probably how you felt now. Yes. I was much younger. She was a newborn, but, you know, it ended up happening is she had a, you know, we found out later that one of the nurses who ended up giving her some of those pre or those, those initial immunizations didn't wash her hands between children and literally injected 
some E. coli into my daughter's shoulder. Oh my goodness. That literally just destroyed the growth plate in her shoulder and a couple other things. And she was really in bad shape. They had to go in and do a surgery, open her up, lance it open, relieve all the pressure. And, you know, ended up, it, it's caused my, my daughter's had lifetime of some disability because of that. Um, though we were able to, through a surgery when she was like 13 years old, kind of correct a lot of the damage that had been done when she was a baby. But you got to remember, she, I mean, think about it. She had an infection going on in this joint. Right. As a newborn. As a newborn. And nobody, you couldn't tell it was there. Her shoulder didn't swell. It wasn't anything like that. Yeah. And uh, it literally kind of ate away at her growth plate and a couple of other things that ended up causing permanent lifelong, you know, damage. So I understand that feeling of, you know, why is what's wrong? And yeah. You go to the doctor and say, I don't get this. What's going on? Yeah, exactly. Do, Something right? is not right. That's exactly what we went through. I can relate to your story so much. Mm-hmm. And so with it, they, they went into, was it, was it an immediate diagnosis or did it take? No, them- unfortunately with a lot of these rare diseases, you know, they're not looking for a, something so rare. So, you know, it took six months of testing. And I feel like when I hear stories of other rare disease patients, that's really not long in comparison to what a lot of these families go through. But for us, for us, six months felt like a lifeline, like a lifetime of just test after test trying to get to what is wrong. And I'm kind of like, you had no signs of anything like this in your family lineage. Exactly. It's, this is a genetic disease. And my husband and I later found out that we're both carriers, but no one in our family had ever had this. And we had never even heard of it. I mean, is there any way that they, you could have, yeah, I know they do the standard blood test before you get married, but I mean, was there any way that you could have tested for this and known that you had these markers? Usually, yes, you can test for it. and But usually it's not tested for if you don't have a family history, right? So initially you go through the testing and they ask questions about your family history. And if you don't say anything about something like this, it's not something that's tested for. It is now, which is great. It's actually becoming a part of the mandatory newborn screening panel, which is amazing, but it wasn't at the time. And say again, what what's the name of the disease? Spinal muscular atrophy or SMA it, for short. Is, and I'm not, I'm not saying it in a blame way. I'm just asking, is it because the two of you had that marker and you can both come together? That's the reason why? It manifests itself or it just is a random manifestation. I know it's like one in every hundred thousand kids get it, but is it, is it something that, that is because the two of you had it or would it, yes. if you had married someone else who didn't have that gene, would it still have happened? No, you're, you're exactly right. It's because the two of us had it. So 50, one in 50 people are carriers of this disease and you don't know. And what makes it rare, what one in 50 is not that rare of people being carriers, but what makes it rare is two people coming together, like you said, who are both carriers of it. And then you have a 25% chance with each pregnancy of passing it along to your child. So my husband and I are both confirmed carriers. So it was not a random mutation. And and fortunate that your first son did not have it. Yes, because then we, we knew by comparison what a typical healthy developing child looked like. And so when our second son started showing these signs and missing milestones, we knew something was amiss. And one more question. I'm just trying to figure this all out genetically again. So now will your son, both of them, or your first son, is he now a carrier of the same gene because both mother and father have it? And so therefore he would probably, it would be very smart for him to test again and have whoever his potential spouse will be later in life test also, right? So he, each 
pregnancy has a 25% chance of the child being um, having the disease, 50% of chance of them not having the disease, not being a carrier, 25% chance of them being a carrier. Our older son, we did have tested after the fact, and we learned he's not a carrier. He doesn't have the disease and he's not a carrier. But yes, really important to to test and to know for for future. Right, and what was the what's the prognosis? Talk talk to me a little bit about the prognosis of this disease. Well, you know, at the time of diagnosis, Montella was really really grim. Um, it was, you know, this disease will slowly rob him of his strength. Um, the progression of the disease is inevitable. This SMA is the number one cause of genetic death in infants. Um, and we were told that at the time there was no treatment and there was no cure. So it was as parents, it was kind of pretty much the most devastating thing we could hear. And then you, you of course you went through some to, from specialists and specialists, specialists and came across, was it in a clinical trial or was it a already approved treatment protocol? So they had, um, there was a clinical trial there. We kind of dug into what research is going on for this disease. Is it or anything, you know, being done? Um, historically, there wasn't, there was no treatment. There was nothing, but. Um, well, I mean, that, that right there, when, when, when you say historically, I mean, they come in and they tell you that your child has SMA and there's really nothing we can do about it. I mean, what was that? What was that like for you and your husband when you get this kind of news? How did you react to that? We were, we, we, you know, we fell apart. It was, it was our, our whole world kind of went dark. You know, we were walking around in a fog for, for months, just, just deep, deep sadness because our son, you know, he was so vibrant. You wouldn't know looking at him. He was so bright, vibrant and alive. And, you know, and we had all these hopes and dreams for the, what we wanted for him. And here they were all shattered knowing that we were going to have to stand by and slowly watch him lose his strength and that his life expectancy would be shortened. It was, um, it was just the it was the hardest thing we've ever been through. And at the time, what, what kind of life expectancy did the doctors kind of try to give you through the crystal ball? You know, they, not, they never really said, um, but, you know, we did what everybody does. And we got on, we looked around and, um, you know, nobody could tell us definitively because every patient with it is different. Each case is so different. There's different levels of severity. We know he wasn't the, the most severe type of SMA. We knew he wasn't the least um, severe type of SMA. He was somewhere in the middle. And we didn't know exactly what that meant, but we knew it would definitely affect um, yeah, his life expectancy. And that was, for us, that was enough to, for just to feel like this was the worst news we could get. Okay. And then how did you find out about the trial? We luckily we plugged into the Cure SMA organization, who is an organization that is really um, funding a lot of the research and providing care and support for our families who are affected. And so we plugged in, that's how we initially learned in the tr about the trial plugging in. Then we started digging around and researching and learning about the science. And we just kind of, I mean, we were way beyond <laughs> our you know competency levels at this point, just trying to understand this. Um, and then we started following it and it moved into another phase of the trial, which, you know, was huge. A lot of most, a lot of drugs fail, they, you know, they fall out of the trial, but this was moving along. And so it moved into a phase where the criteria was that they had opened it up to patients um, uh, that were my, my son's age at the time. And um, one of the criteria was that you had to live within um, 
uh, a certain proximity of a, of a test site location. And there weren't many of these around the country. It was just a few. And we found out that there was one in our area. And so we kind of became probably like these, these squeaky wheels, just going crazy, you know, trying to express our interest, reaching out to everybody we could. And we really kind of made it our mission to try and get him involved because we knew without a medical intervention, what was going to happen. And so this trial felt like um, maybe there was a possibility for a different outcome. And you were able to enroll him in the trial. Yeah, we got him enrolled and he was um, close to three, two and a half, three at the time. So he's still pretty, pretty young. And um, it was exciting and it was nerve wracking. It was everything. Um, but to us, we were just so grateful that he, he got in and that he could participate. And uh, it was a blind study. So we weren't sure if he was going to receive the drug treatment or not. That was a risk. Um but we could tell pretty quickly early on after receiving a dose of the treatment that he was receiving it because he started doing some things we had never seen him do before. And that was mind blowing. Like what? I mean, explain it to me. I just, I remember like so vividly one time, you know, he was um, lying, I had him lying down. I was, you know, changing him. And all of a sudden he lifted his legs up. And this is something right so typical for a kid, usually at this age, at that age, they're they're lifting their legs over their head when they're laying down. Well, that was something he was never able to do. And all of a sudden his legs went up. And I remember, you know, calling to my husband, Tony, you got to get in here. You got to see this. And I'm thinking, am I crazy? Am I making this up just because I'm wanting to will it to be true? Um, But no, it was, you know, we were both like, wow, that, okay, he must be on the drug. And then that was just thrilling that, not only was he receiving the drug, but that it was effective. It was working and pretty early on. And then talk to, could you tell me about some of the other breakthroughs that, that happened? And, and then it just, you know, it just kind of went from there right before he was enrolled. Um, he, he, like I said, he wasn't able to pull the stand, but he, he had met all the other milestones like crawling, for example, that was something he was able to do. But right before um, we got him in the trial, SMA started to take its course and he was having trouble crawling. I remember watching him and seeing how difficult it was and just feeling like, here we go. This is, this is it. And we're going to have to watch him regress. And, um, and then after getting the doses, here he is now he's crawling again, he's holding his neck up, um, you know, like he was able to before, you know, strong. And it just went from there. Montel, he, he, we had a, leg braces for him and he was able to get up on his feet and we got a walker and with leg braces and a walker, he started taking steps. I mean, it's going to tear me up just talking mm-hmm. about it. I mean, um, you know, steps that were just something we never knew if that would happen. And here he was, you know, stepping, um, walking and ambulating. And it was just as a parent, it was like, um, seeing my little boy able to do, you know, just typical everyday functions was just so thrilling. Um, and, and it, has, it has just gotten better from there. And how long did the trial run? This trial is still actually taking place, but um, because they're continuing to study it long term. But um, in 2016, um, that's when uh, we got our FDA approval of that drug. Yeah, okay, so now there he is in a what do you call it? A longitudinal study now? Is that what it yeah, is? Yeah. It's like a rollover extended study where they're, they continue to just gain knowledge of, of these patients. Um, and, and the drug is now available to others. Yes. So now any child that's diagnosed with SMA now has treatment options available. 
And uh, so how old is he now? Now he's t he's turning 10 tomorrow. <laughs> and how's he doing? I mean, he's still he's leg doing great. I mean, really for, for what, what he has and where he's come, he, you know, he, his main form of mobility is in a wheelchair, but he can ambulate now. He can, he can walk, you know, a couple hundred feet and um, he goes to school. He's in fourth grade. He has a ton of friends. He's whip smart firecracker personality. And, um, and he just has a lot of functional mobility that um, has allowed him to um, do a lot of things in his daily life. You know, things we weren't sure he'd be able to do. And just give me an idea now what the prognosis is. As long as he stays on the medication, will he continue to get better or will it improve or will he kind of stay at a plateau or what? We don't know, you know, we yeah. don't know. I mean, we are really in uncharted territory here and it is just unfolding every day and nobody can tell us definitively like what it is going to be. Um, I think initially the, the hope for the drug was that, uh, it would stop the regression, right? It would just stop him from um, declining. Well, that happened. And not only that happened, but he strengthened. And then we thought at some point there would be a plateau and perhaps there might be still at some point, but he hasn't reached it yet. We still discover new little things he's able to do that he wasn't um, just, you know, from time to time, we'll just see him doing something. And the awesome thing about Miles is that he never stops trying. He just, he'll try something new and then say, oh, look, I just did that. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. And now is, is SMA considered a rare disease? I mean, what, what is, what's the total population in the United States? It is. It's um, one in 10,000, excuse me, one in 11,000 people are affected. Mm -hmm. And um, a rare disease is defined by... Um, anyone that's a condition that affects fewer than 200,000 people in the U.S. So okay. it's considered rare. So I think, okay, it still is rare. Mm -hmm. gotcha. And, and I mean, so after your journey, you decided to start an organization called raremamas.com. Well, tell me a little bit about it. Rare Mamas is, um, is my heart, you know, just going through this with my son and, seeing how hard it was to find information, how hard it was to find other people going through navigating a rare disease with their child. You look around, you don't see anybody, you know, you know, who has, was walking this road. And, um, I just, I've went through so many, you know, hit roadblocks and I stumbled and if there, anything could be hard along the way it was, we probably hit every, you know, hard, um, aspect of this. And so I felt like coming out of that, I wanted to share what I learned so the next mom would have it a little bit easier. So Rare Mamas is me sharing, you know, what I've learned. And really, I want it to be um, a community, a community for mother mothers to find each other, to learn from each other, um, to get practical tips, daily living hacks. And really, I just want to empower these moms to feel like they're capable of doing this. And I think when you see other people out there doing it, that helps you feel like you can do it too. So that's really my mission is um, because when you get that diagnosis, you feel like, how will I ever do this? 
Well, you and, know, and, and let me let's let's simplify this a little bit. I'm going to ask you a question that you just kind of answered in some ways, but I want you to answer even more. I mean, talk a little bit about what is so unique about dealing with a rare disease diagnosis in contrast to, say, other diagnoses. I mean, you know, children are diagnosed with with maladies all way, all the time, and there's a lot of mothers out there fighting on behalf of, of their child, making sure that they get the right information. But what makes the rare disease so significantly different? I would say um, rare by its very nature means there's less information. That means that there may not be a tertiary center to go to. There may not be best care practices in place. There's not data from, you know, um, other patients and, and, you know, volumes of patients who have tried various things to know exactly what's going to work. So rare by its very nature leads to a lot of uncertainties and no clear path often. And that on top of the emotional um, factors with getting a di- any diagnosis, right? Anything that affects health, which is the most important thing. Um, you add that layer of uncertainty and unknowns and no clear path, completely overwhelming on top of already feeling overwhelmed by just getting having any kind of diagnosis. And in Rare Mamas, have you run into other parents who have are dealing with SMA? I have. I mean, fortunately, I plugged into um, a lot of the SMA community early on, and that helped us tremendously. And I, I feel like I learned from other SMA mothers who were further down their path. They wanted to help me. And then now I feel like I'm helping, you know, other SMA moms who um, maybe I'm a little bit further along now than they are, and I can now help them. Well, share a little bit of the advice that you've received that you'd love to give to others. Um, gosh, these women gave me so much good advice. Um, some of the, the advice I got was to really plug into the community. And I think that is probably one of the best pieces of advice I could pass along. Um, no matter what the disease is, plug into the community for that disease. Exactly. And rare diseases, especially because you might not find other patients with your exact rare disease, right? Um, because of the nature of rare, but if you plug into the r- bigger rare disease community, uh, you're or any really any other community of, of people uh, navigating an illness or chronic illness, you're going to find um, information and you're going to be welcomed with open arms because you know the community gets it and they're they want to help you because they've been there. So I think that's one of your best um, like something high to put up on your your list of what to do which is already really long, but plug into that community. It's going to save you time. They're going to, they're going to help you. You know, I think one of, the, one of the, the most important aspects of being a caregiver, caretaker, is to not lose sight of your own self. <laughs> what are your thoughts about that? Oh, wow. Yeah. Sure you buried yourself and trying your best <laughs> to make sure you took care of Miles. And the next thing you, know, you turn around and look at yourself and go, oh, my goodness, I'm not taking care of myself. And you're oh. not taking care of your other son. So true. And I will say I learned the hard way and now I'm trying to teach other people to be smarter than I was because I, 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 I poured it all into my son. I was, you know, and this is what we as parents, any parents do, right? You you just want to help your child and the stakes are so high, but I really, I felt burnout. I felt fatigue. I have physical injury from, from not taking care of myself and, and I, I physically lift and care for my son who's in a wheelchair and so not taking care of myself is really led to um, 
me realizing that that's not sustainable. And so now I'm really passing along to other, to other parents to prioritize um, making sure you're doing those little daily things you need to do for yourself so that you can sustain, so that you can keep going, so that you can keep providing for your child. It's essential. That's what I've learned. I mean, in letting people know it's okay to take a little break from your child. Yes, exactly. I think, you know, by the nature of this, you think maybe that feels selfish. I have a child with, you know, a disability. Maybe parents might feel selfish in taking the time for themselves. It's not selfish. It's survival, really. And it's it's what you have to do to to walk this road, really. And what are some of the resources that, you know, aren't readily available or what are some of the resources that you think parents who are dealing with rare diseases should be aware of? You know, I mentioned that community. And um, so when you're dealing with a specific rare disease that may not have an organization championing it, it's it, it's great to pull out to the bigger rare disease community. National Organization for Rare Disorders, NORD, is a great um, organization here in the United States championing rare diseases, as is Global Genes, another amazing organization, Every Life Foundation. These organizations are providing tools, tips, resources, advocacy. You know, they're linked into the players in biotech and pharma. So plug into this, these communities. Um, I would also say that after you get into this, you'll learn each state has programs available for in-home health, um, healthcare, um, respite. These programs are available, but they're hard to find and they vary by state. So you got to really do some digging and research and find these resources in these programs because they're there for you and they will help you get the healthcare you might need for yourself or your child, the, 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 you know, the nursing care, the medical equipment and things of this nature. A lot of people know about that, but they are there. You just have to dig for them within your, with your individual state. Do you uh, have some of that information on your website, like as a repository? I do. I do. Yeah. I have a resource page on raremoments.com resources that has a lot of this information. So, so if people want to get it, they go up to again raremamas.com or raremamas.com resources or raremamasresources.com. Raremamas.com rare disease resources. Got it, got it. And and Miles is doing well now. Is he off of school right now today? He's at school right now. Yes, it's music to my ears. Yeah, he's doing really well. He's about to have. Let's just take a second though and talk a little bit about how you and your husband navigated this space and, and stayed strong together. I know a lot of times, you know, something like this can break a family apart in some ways because, you know, one or the other spouse isn't getting the attention that they need from that spouse. And even look at, at your older son, whose name is? Mason. Mason. I mean, you know, um, and sometimes, you know, the other children just feel left out because there's so much attention focused on the child that's ill. I mean, how did you, your husband and your family, how do you navigate that? You know, we're still navigating that every day and learning every day how to balance that all. I, w- I will say, fortunately for us, we we did have some of those those families, those, those SMA families that warned us of some of those things early on, said, this can really impact your marriage. This can impact your, you know, your, your older, your other children. And so I think we knowing that, like they armed us with that. And so we kind of went in knowing that we had to really keep the foundation of our marriage strong. We had to really focus on our other son and it's really, really hard, but we kind of, we fight all the time to try and do the little things to focus on our marriage. 
and to like what like what again for example just you know if we you know if even if we can't get childcare, it may look like um going into our backyard and having dinner out there together while our children are watching a movie just as something as simple like that just so we can have time to connect and um and talk about each other's days just things like that um if you know so it doesn't have to be something huge and unattainable but little simple things like that um, and, and we do things for each other. You know, he gives me, sometimes he'll wake up early on the weekends with, the, with the kids and let me sleep. And, and, and that is like, you know, that may, makes me love him more. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. not maybe spending time with him, but that's him, um, um, helping me and, and seeing my needs. Acknowledging you. And yes. Like you need to be, you need some extra rest. Yes, exactly. So it's, it's little things like that. I think that really helped us. Wow. Well, look at me. I, I wish you and your family well. Give out your website one more time. Raremamas.com. Raremamas.com. And you are a rare mama there, Nikki. So thank you so much for all you're doing to help others who are in the same situation. And I you know, wish you and your family well. Thanks for sharing with uh, our free thinking audience because you know these are some of the tips that you've given out are really good. And I think that people need to understand that hope is out there. I mean, don't find yourself thinking that you're in a hopeless situation. Hope is there. Hope is everything. It helps you march forward. And we all need that. So thank you so much for having me and for, you know, shining a light on rare diseases. Um, I'm really grateful. Absolutely. And thank you for shining a light on rare diseases and putting yourself out there, letting people know that, you know, you can get through this. So uh, we're always here for you. Um, got a home here. If you want to talk some more at some point in time, or you have anything in advance coming up, that you want to promote, come on back to us and uh, tell Miles I said hi. Uh, tell Mason, Mason, right? Yes. Tell Mason I said hi. And um, again, I hope you guys stay safe, stay well, and um, continue to love our family where you are. Thank you, Montel. Thanks for your show and the work you're doing. So grateful. Absolutely. Thank you. And make, thank you for tuning in this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please send us your comments.